brothers and sisters, as a, just a note about how you approach the reading of your Bible, if you have a physical copy in front of you, you'll see more clearly what I'm talking about, but there are many places where the various translation committees make decisions and they enter uh, these section headers in the text of your Bible. And what that naturally implies is that now we're in a different subject, that either the situation has changed, the location has changed, something is different, and it's a, and it's a, uh, it's a new section. And sometimes that's the case, but not all the time is it the case. And so because it's not all the time the case, when I study the Bible, I never go by those. And I want to discourage you from going by those. Read the text and see where the actual breaks are. Uh, The gospel writers in particular compile their narrative. They're trying to make a point. This is not simply a biography of Jesus. They're making a point. And so oftentimes they will connect events. And so looking at the conjunctions, those words and phrases that link episodes together will oftentimes tell you what the author is intending for you to read as one episode. It is not that the author is trying to say that the events took place seamlessly. The author in connecting them is intending for you to understand that he wants them to be read singularly to make a point. Okay? All that to say, this entire section began in verse 22 with a demon-possessed man there. And we, and we spent time last week talking about that. But everything that goes through the end of this chapter is a continuation and elaboration inspired by that. And specifically, the response of the Pharisees and religious leaders to his healing of that demon-possessed man. So the remainder of chapter 12 is not just a spattering of random sayings. It's a continued discussion from this one event. I did not want to read all the way back from verse 22, so we're actually picking up this narrative in verse 30. If you, if you go back and listen to last week's sermon, the last verse that I made any comment about was verse 29. So we're going to resume our reading of this passage at verse 30, but understand that everything that's coming flows from that demon-possessed man presented in verse 22, Jesus' healing of that man, and the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus and attribution of Jesus' power to the devil in verse 24. So verse 24 then becomes the reason for everything else that happens in this chapter. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to read with me as we pick up our reading of God's word from the Gospel of Matthew, starting at verse 30 of chapter 12. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, 
but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage for how it reveals and confronts unbelief in various expressions and the warnings against such unbelief. Grant that we would have hearts that believe that are soft and malleable and responsive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we indicated before reading scripture, this is a continuation of what came before, of what was initially begun last week as we considered verse 22. 
And as we've been looking at the gospel of Matthew, we've been reminded time and time again that the point of the gospel of Matthew is to bring each and every one of us to a decision point. Who is Jesus? Do you identify Jesus rightly and do you respond to him rightly? Who is Jesus to you? That's the decision point that Matthew wants every single one of us to reach. And unbelief oftentimes follows along a spectrum. Unbelief oftentimes follows along the spectrum from outright antagonism to the more subtle apathy. Outright antagonism looks like the Pharisees in their expressed disdain and contempt, but it looks like apathy in the people who see the miracles, see the wonders, hear the teaching, witness the ministry. And while they may love the dinner and the show, they nonetheless remain unmoved. Now, I don't doubt for a minute that none of you here would dare suggest antagonism towards Jesus. But could it be that there are some in this room for whom there is a great apathetic indifference towards the things of God? Could it be? Decision point. Who is Jesus? Who he is must determine your response to him. If he's merely the sayer of Sagween sayings, then fine. But you don't need to base your life on him. If he is the raver of mad self-proclamations, well, then turn away. But if he is the son of God come in the flesh, turn to him with all your might. Love him with all your soul. Pursue the kingdom of which he inaugurates. So who is Jesus? Jesus here interacts with our unbelief at many levels. That's what all these episodes is tied together by the, the interaction of Jesus with various expressions of unbelief. And first, he interacts with the antagonism of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He famously, in chapter 12, verse 30, speaks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and the easy I want to say that the easy, I almost think the cop-out thing is to identify the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as Jesus is doing a, a fancy way of saying persistent unbelief. I'm not so sure. Because the emphasis from verse 30 all the way to 37 is on what you say. Watch out 
you may just say something that you can't take back. That's, that's the thrust of everything he says through verse 37. Watch out. You will give an account for every careless word you speak. That's, that's what he says. He's not saying that the Pharisees here have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He simply holds it forth as the sin for which there is no forgiveness, neither in this age nor the age to come. He doesn't identify it. But that begs the question, what is blasphemy? Well, to blaspheme is to speak contemptuously, derisively, or disrespectfully of, of something sacred. But not necessarily only exclusively sacred in the things of, as in the triune God, but I'm reminded when I read this passage about blasphemers and, and Jesus warning them about their careless words. I'm reminded of Jude, verses 8 through 10, where Jude, the Lord's half-brother, cautions us, identifying the people who he's, who he's speaking about as those who are ignorant and they blaspheme everything they don't understand. And he contrasts them with, with the archangel Michael, who when contending with the devil for the body of Moses, dared not blaspheme against one of the mighty ones. In other words, Jude is reminding us that there's a tendency among people to speak derisively, disrespectfully, flippantly of things that are so strong, mighty, powerful, beyond our comprehension, beyond our comprehension, and we don't even realize the consequence of what we're doing. And yet, there's great consequence indeed. For just as Jude goes on to say that they speak like unreasoning animals and therefore they are destroyed like unreasoning animals. This reminds me totally of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. That these religious leaders have seen and their denial is such that they don't understand truly. Jesus is saying you don't really understand but you're being flippant with your Words of dismissal, your words of contemptuous disregard. And Jesus is saying, a tree is known by its fruit. If out of your mouth comes these words about me that are, that are dis dismissive and disrespectful, then you know the tree is bad and your tree is bad. We are evil. And for every careless word that we've spoken, we will give an account. And so applied to Jesus then. He's saying, don't be quick to dismiss with your words what you have seen. What have you seen? What have you experienced? Have you heard the voice of the shepherd? Have you seen his handiwork? 
Don't deny with your words. When you see something that you cannot explain, don't be quick to destroy with your words what God might be building up. So beware sins of expressed denial, for you just might say something you can't take back. That's the warning. Have some circumspection. But it's circumspection precisely that the hubristic heart of man lacks. And so he moves on to this warning against having an attitude of low estimation of what you've seen in Jesus. What you've seen in him and what you've heard from him. We tend to have this unimpressed view of the things of God. It's just, it's in our culture and world. I've, I've heard so many times, yeah, I'll get right with God someday. That's particularly, I've heard that in Southerners because only in the South are people raised with a form of cultural Christianity that they kind of know it's true, but that same cultural religion tells them they can have their fun now and then get serious about God later. You are not promised tomorrow. That unimpressed heart, and, and we see it on display here. When the Pharisees and the scribes have the audacity to say to him, teacher, we, we want to see a sign. He just healed a man. Which is why Mark and Luke specify that they were trying to test him. Understand that Jesus is not a dummy and he doesn't dance to your beck and call. Throughout the Gospels, we see a glimpse of Jesus' personality that when someone is having a genuine issue, he's, he's fairly quick to respond. But when this kind of tomfoolery is going on, he doesn't, he doesn't play their game. In fact, after calling them a crooked and adulterous generation, he reminds them that the only sign they're going to see is the, is the sign of Jonah. Now consider the man Jonah, that prophet to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. He did no wondrous works. What sign, what miracle, what wonder did he perform in Nineveh? Nothing. What did he do? He preached. And it wasn't even a winsome, you know, beautiful message. It was 30 days and this place is going to be burned to the ground. Wow. So what was the sign of Jonah then? Well, the fact that he was in Nineveh was the sign. Because he should have been dead. He was reckoned as dead. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. Th that doesn't happen. And when someone is eaten by something, they don't come back out. I mean, not the way they entered, anyway. <laughs> so his mere presence there is the sign. In the same way, Jesus is going to be reckoned as dead. He is going to be dead. 
And then his mere presence then becomes the sign of veracity, that he's been telling the truth all along. They want a sign, and he's been giving them signs. Since chapter four, he's been giving them signs. And now they ask for a sign. What else is there for them to receive? What else is there for him to do? So therefore, the only sign you're going to get is you're going to think I'm dead. You're going to think I'm out, but I'm going to be here. That's the sign. And then Jesus drives home the punch. The men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah was like the most flawed prophet in in the Bible. I mean, he hated the people he was preaching to. He's barely obeying the Lord. He's a racist, or at least an ethnocentrist. I mean, he, he, he wants death and destruction rain down on those people. And so he's not trying to get them to repent. And yet, with no signs, no miracles, no wonders, they repent. And here's one who is far greater than Jonah, who has brought sight, hearing, motor, uh, muscle, muscle motor, he's restored walking. He's cleansed the sick and the leper. He's driven out demons. And he's even raised the dead, but he kept that on the down low. And he he did it in such a way that, that people could plausibly think that maybe she hadn't really been dead, that she was just almost dead. Jesus has come amongst us. What do you do? And the, the queen of, of the south or the queen of Sheba, she's referred to in, in second or first kings. It says that she came from the ends of the earth seeking the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom that came from above and, and someone greater than Solomon is here. You haven't had to go anywhere. He's come to you. And still, it's of so low estimated value to you that you don't listen. So what is to befall a people, a person who has so low estimation that when it's here, there's no response? Don't be like that. If Jesus is who he says he is, you must respond. You must turn to him. Flee to him, run to him. And beware, this perceived sense of autonomy. One of the great myths is that we are basically free agents in life. And I'm this independent, elevated judge. And I get to decide what's true and what's false. And I'm the master of me. And 
and if I give my allegiance or loyalty to somebody or something, then, then it's because of my reasoned, ra- rationalized decision to do so. And Jesus wants you to know that the throne that is your heart, it cannot exist empty. Something is the master of you. What will it be? And he paints this graphic picture in verses uh, 43 through 45. He is not saying that the man he's just liberated from the demon is about to be repossessed. That's not what he's saying. But on the occasion of having just released a man from oppression to the devil, there's a very opportune moment to make his point. There's a demon-possessed man, and for whatever reason, the demon decides to leave. He's bored, I guess. Greener pastures and all that. And the, the demon leaves, and he wanders around for a while, and after a while, the demon realizes, you know, I had it good back where I was. And, and he believes that that person is his. He calls it my house. He calls a human being my house. Now, meanwhile, while this demon's been gone, the man has made good use of the time. He's been industrious. He has labored. He's set things in order. He's engaged in good, healthy lifestyle decisions. So his life is in order. But the demon comes back. And when he comes back, what does the demon discover? There's no one there. There's a void that had not been filled. And so the demon comes back and now that the, now that the paint's been put fresh on the walls and, the, and there's new, new, uh, new, new uh, window dressings up, the, the place looks prettier, he decides to invite his friends. Who doesn't want to show off a nice new house to their friends? That's what this demon does. And so the man's in a worse state than he was before. The void, the emptiness is what Jesus is saying does not exist long. You are not, you are not a free agent. Either Christ is Lord of you or something else is. And that something else does not have your interests in mind. So, beware thinking that you can exist kind of detached and aloof and, and you know, I'm gonna be the, the, the dispassionate decider of what's real and true for me. No, submit to Christ. Acknowledge him as the son of man the one to whom God the Father has given authority and dominion over all things, which means you. Recognize that the void must be filled. You only have a choice to make about who's going to fill it. And if not Jesus, then what else is there? And lastly, he takes a mighty swing And he warns us against the sin of presumed proximity. 
We love family. In our culture, that, that has very little use for it. Since, since the Communist Manifesto, the governments at various levels have sought to undermine the family. And it's, it's, it's horrendous how our personal actions and choices now have militated against the family. But nonetheless, there's this impulse to think of the family. And in our theology with covenant and all that, we can tend to, dare I say, over-inflate family. And it's easy to think that because of who I am by birth, that I have special access to Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus' mother and brothers, as we're told in other gospels, thought he was crazy. And they weren't here to have a special discipleship lesson. They were here to bring him home because he's going to get himself killed. They didn't believe in him. But they were looking out for him. They were trying to save his life. And what does Jesus say? You know what he says. Who do I reckon as kin? Those who do the will of my Father. Now understand, he's not trashing family. But he is targeting presumed access based upon affinity. Just because you were born into a covenant family does not absolve you of the need for personal faith in Jesus. Just because you're a member of the church and you've convinced us elders that you're in right standing to God does not mean that Jesus reckons you as one of his brothers or sisters. It's he and she who does the will of the Father whom he reckons. And the Bible tells us what is the principal work that God commands of us? To believe in the name of his son whom he has sent. That's the principal work. But it's not the bare naked belief of profession. It's the robust, full-orbed faith of expression and obedience that Jesus reckons as kin. So we are oftentimes tempted to fall into a form of apathy. But Jesus consistently throughout the Gospels keeps, keeps that heat turned up on that, on that burner. He wants you to understand that the things of, the, the things of God, the things of the kingdom are, are of such vital consequence, of such an urgent nature, that it requires our full attention, our wholehearted devotion, and indeed, our robust declaration. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the son of God come in the flesh? I think you believe that. So show it with your zeal and dedication 
in devotion to him. And beware all the sins of apathy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for bringing this word to us. For warning us and cautioning us against indifference and presumption. Thinking there's always tomorrow that we can have our fun now and get right with you later. And that we can just spout off whatever we want consequence free. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Grant that we would be marked by circumspection and dedication and devotion, that we would identify you rightly and in so doing that we would live as we should. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.